Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 149 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we talk with garden designer Linda Hostetler about designing gardens for plant collectors. The plant profile is on Blatilla, and we share what's going on in the garden, as well as some upcoming local gardening events in the What's New segment. We close out with Sean and Allison McManus of the Spoken Garden who share the last word on why you should plant Liatris. This episode, we're joined by Linda Hostetler. She is a garden designer extraordinaire, and we're going to be talking this episode all about garden design in particular for those plant collectors amongst us whose gardens look like a little bit of a jigsaw puzzle. Right, Linda? Well, they can be if you want to collect uh, all the different cultivars and you're, mm-hmm. you get home and you don't know where to place them. Oh, that's that's a common problem, I know. And who doesn't go shopping, right, and just fall in love with a plant with no place to actually put it? It gets tough. I walk <laughs> around with a pot in my hand all the time. Yeah, I think that's my biggest exercise routine, Linda, is the pot walk we'll call it escorting pots around the garden and then setting them back down from where you started and never finding the place for them that's right pots on wheels <laughs> so before we dive into all that let's talk a little bit about you and your background and here on the garden dc podcast we like to ask our guests were they born with chlorophyll in their veins and a green thumb well i was actually born in washington dc which you don't here often, and moved right to North Springfield. And my earliest memories were of my being in the wheelbarrow with my dad, who was the gardener. And I remember him planting tulips and digging for digging roses and pruning a pyracantha shrub that covered the wall of our house. And I we had the street was lined with crab trees. Um, and the cedar waxwings would come to it and eat the berries and get drunk every spring. It was it was a ritual. Um, I would ha- I would collect birds and foster them. I had a mockingbird, so I learned to love nature as a kid. And my mom was great at leaving a chore list on the refrigerator for me every Saturday morning. So the chores that I had uh, included weeding the vinca, which ran the entire length of the chain link fence in our backyard. So I learned a lot about weeding and plants and bugs very early on, and they became my friends I remember the thousands of fireflies, and I remember luna moths, and I remember keeping praying mantises in jars and chasing my sister with them to scare her. (laughs) And 
I remember going through the woods to collect box turtles and seeing pink lady slippers. I mean, that was my childhood and pulling ticks off of the cats. It was just, it was really, really special. That was the 1960s as a kid. I grew up with no seatbelts. I came in when, when the streetlights came on. And then after that, I went to high school. I went to a few years of college. Being an old hippie, I ended up moving to San Francisco. And then I worked at a laboratory, the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, for 20 years as a graphic designer. So I got an interesting background to become a garden designer. Hmm. And so the graphic design background, I'm sure, is going to play a lot into what we talk about. But um, since you grew up gardening and love of gardening, let's talk a little bit about your garden that you had when you came back here um, to the D.C. area. The one in the plains. Mm-hmm. The one in the plains was uh, I. I bought a a house full of ghosts in the middle of the town of the plains. It had one acre that the only plant was they, there was some dying boxwood in the front that was covered in poison ivy, and at the same time I got a job to design a cat a catalog for a plant farm that was owned by Karen Rexroad. It was it was very famous in the area. I didn't know at the time, but it's the Windy Hill Plant Farm. And we kind of went into, um, you know, I don't know, I don't, like a workforce for a couple of months. And we put out this 58-page catalog that was all keyed to what plants needed and where they should be planted, and really interesting perennials and unusual annuals. So I had this empty acre, and so the money I made designing the catalog, I immediately turned around and bought every single plant that she had at the farm (laughs) and started playing with plants. It became like my laboratory. And then... I would go to bed every night with Michael Durr's manual of woody plants and try to learn about all the shrubs and all the trees. So I would grow plants, trees and shrubs on from very small sizes. And I really got addicted to Japanese maples. They grow like weeds. Um, They sell for outlandish prices, I think, when actually you can put them in a pot, grow them in a container, keep them safe from a lot of creatures, and use them as specimens in your garden and move them around. And that's great for collectors. Hmm. And you mentioned Karen Rexroad. We had her way back on episode 53 talking about perennials and some of her favorites. And she gave us a little bit of about that background about Windy Hill and her former nursery and stuff. It sounds like such a wonderful time to be gardening in our region. I think that era is when things were really taking off. Um, I don't know. I just, 
I was in my own little world, so I, I'm not really sure. I, I kind of, you know, gardeners, true gardeners, I found kind of live in their own little fantasy world, their own little pockets. And they're an interesting group. I was one of them. <laughs> and I, I, I built my garden in the plains in the, in the backyard. Uh, people didn't even know it was what I was doing for the longest time. It had two ponds. I, I dug a 90-foot creek and planned it all out so it would have fast parts and slow parts and fish and marginal plants and deep water plants. And in reality, it was just a mud ditch for six years. But I had it in my head. And that's kind of the way I, I did my entire garden was sculpt the land, make a vignette here, a vignette there, start with the trees. And when I do, when I work with clients at this point, now that I'm old, I love to just walk into a prop, onto a property or into someone's yard and let, let it speak to me. Because I think every property has a painting in it. And then talk to the person and find out what their desires are. Does that make sense? Hmm, that makes perfect sense. And I, I love that every property has a painting in it. That's such a lovely way to think about it. And so let's talk a little bit about the Plains, Virginia, for our listeners who are not in the Washington, D.C. region. Maybe orient that and let them know where that is and what type of soil and conditions for growing that is. Pretty much solid clay. Um, I was amazed that I put so much compost in my soil. I mean, I dragged horse poop from every farm in the area, put it in my garden. And when I went to carve out an, uh, a section for a patio, there was only an inch of topsoil after all those years. Hmm. Our soil is really hard clay. A good thing is if you want to put in a little pond, you really don't even have to use a liner. <laughs> a bad thing is it makes for terrible drainage. Mm -hmm. So you have to be careful. You have to be careful how you, what kind of plants you um, plant and whether they can stand it. You can make really great rain gardens. Um, that's become popular. But uh, drainage is key. So... Berms are important. You need to build up um, and keep adding compost. Hmm. And the plains, for those who are outside our region, that's very much what we call horse country. Oh, horse country, right. The mm -hmm. plains, were, the town area itself, it was about 350 people, very tiny town. And um, it was unique. I had Robert Duvall as a neighbor. It was kind of interesting. And I would walk to the post office every day for my mail because we didn't have mail service. We had horse and buggies that would come through town and uh, the hunt would come through town. And it was just, it was a super cool place to live. Hmm. 
And most people in our region know it as a place to go for like a weekend visit. Like that's your trip to the country and how beautiful it is and the the rolling hills and pastures full of horses out there. And you certainly had no lack of horse manure to amend that garden. And I also had no lack of clients, which was really nice because once I built my front garden, people started to notice me. I designed the Gray Horse Inn over there and Steve Bender stayed there and asked the owner who designed the garden, which was great because he was senior editor, I think, at uh, Southern Living at the time. So he was able to uh, put a couple of my clients into his magazines, which was fantastic. And I, so that's how I was able to get some clients word of mouth. I, I don't like to advertise. And so this is kind of strange being on a podcast, I have to tell you. <laughs> I was this is about, say- the, about the closest I will ever get to advertising. Mm-hmm. The secret is going to be out, Linda. (laughs) So you take on very limited clients and just what you're capable of a a few at a time. And I would imagine develop a years long relationship with some of them. I tend to get very, very involved. And I I really would like to give, um, make a beautiful garden. I've made many gardens, many, many gardens, and I've made a lot of large gardens and a lot of pocket gardens. It, it, and you can go into a large space and make a very small garden. It's, it depends on what the person needs and wants. And it's going to depend on the person's age. It's going to depend on the person's amount of time they want to spend. And then if we get back to the collector, it's going to be- depend on the person's budget. Mm-hmm. Because you can spend a ton of money on gardening. Yeah, I think some people are in for a lot of sticker shock (laughs) when they think uh, for some reason that plants and soil and the labor should be free. It's so worth it, though. Mm -hmm. And your garden in the Plains, Virginia, uh, was visited by... I think, Historic Garden Week of Virginia, your stop on several of those type of tours. Yeah, that's, oh my gosh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, there were a thousand people coming through my house. I was freaking out. But they went through the garden and really enjoyed it. And what happened is there was this terrible storm the week before Historic Garden Tour. And Big limbs came down, and I just thought this is going to, I'm never going to get it cleaned up in time. We did, and the pink tulips that I wanted to bloom underneath my pink variegated cornice, dogwood, um, bloomed together simultaneously, and I got terrific pictures. So it was worth all the stress. Mm, sounds beautiful. And I know I visited your garden. Um, probably much later on than that with the garden bloggers fling group that came to the DC area. Um, so we did a bunch of Virginia side gardens and private gardens as part of that tour. Uh Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that was not a good time in my life. Mm. So my son was very ill then. And um, I, my husband and my close friend, um, I think took over the tour for me. Do you mm-hmm. remember that? Yeah, I do remember them greeting us, and I thought your garden was the best of the tour. I still have to say, 
and I took some incredible photos. I thought it was just beautiful. I love the touches of color and whimsy and all the little vignettes and kind of garden rooms that you had carved out of it. And you're right that it's just a long linear garden. Like it goes almost straight back from the road. Do you remember how long, like was that an acre back or how long, how far it's back? It's an acre. That? It is. Wow. And it's wow. Um, like the front yard, the front driveway is a hundred feet back and it's only 40 feet across. And then it's another hundred feet back. It, it was a very tough lot to work and I did have to carve it up a lot. And, uh, there was really no good place to see the garden from the house unless you were on the second floor of the house. So you just do with what you have. Hmm. Um, but yeah, it worked out. Thank you very much for your compliments. Yeah, and I thought it was such a great way to, you know, you just kept going and going and there was more and more. And that's like the best kind of garden, right, is that it reveals itself to you a little bit at a time and that you don't get to see it all at once. I think that's even better. I love secrets and fantasy and romance. And I love a path that allows you to look at plants uh, one way going up and another way coming back. Oh, I was just going to ask, you had mentioned carving out a few times. And so I wanted to ask physically how that works. Do you actually rent a backhoe? Is it just you and a, or a worker with a shovel sculpting the earth? Or how do you create those berms and those um, little garden vignettes and rooms? Uh, for clients, I, I usually get a backhoe and have somebody, it depends, you know, it depends um, if I have a good person with a backhoe and, and he knows what he's doing and he will listen. I The way I used to work is I would go from farm to farm and I would use the farm workers. Some of them were really good and some of them weren't. I worked for a long time with one person and I would, and we would make gardens together. Then I would do a lot of things by hand, doing things by hand. The craftsmanship that goes into a garden is as important as the plants. So making things like berms have to be made beautifully. It's not like, it's not like just picking up dirt and <laughs> making a mound somewhere. You have to kind of sculpt the land and, and think about think about what you're creating, how much height you're creating and how much length you're creating. Mm. And then because that's kind of raw sculpted earth <clears throat> that you're working with, uh, how quickly are you planting into it? Uh, because obviously you wouldn't want it to erode immediately if there was a rainstorm or something. Well, usually as fast as I can. I have a hill right now that is so steep. It's it's teaching me a lot. I've learned that I need to get trees in it, <laughs> which is surprising me. Mm -hmm. I'm putting a lot of ornamental grasses in it because the root system seems to be holding um, the ground better. When I moved into the home now that I have, it was just a mat of English ivy. It was about it eight inches thick on top and at least that underneath the ground. And after working with it the first year for a while, trying to dig it up, I discovered that you could roll it like a bale of hay. Mm -hmm. 
So I would cut it into portions that I could roll and start rolling it down the hill. And the main reason I will tell you that I was getting rid of this is it's the nesting spot for copperheads, which we had quite a few of. So bit by bit, the ivy went away and I've had to replace it with perennials because I'm not going to, you know, I, I need, I need diversity. That's just who I am. Mm-hmm. And diversity is going to be key for, I mean, diversity to me is key for beauty, but it's also key for our environment. Mm. And so uh, our topic for this episode, we're talking about plant collectors and how they would design a garden. Um, diversity, you know, is relative. <laughs> so if I was a collector of, say, roses or a collector of hostas, how would you uh, recommend I start arranging that collection in a garden? Well, first I would create a foil. Are you familiar with that word? Mm-hmm. Or would you think the audience would be? Yeah, or maybe we could say backdrop or okay. con- or maybe a contrast. Okay, I would create that. Like uh, if you're if you're doing a, a border, make creating a new border that doesn't have already have a backdrop like a fence. You might want to create one, make a shrub, put shrubs behind it, and that will help the plants in front of it stand out. Um. That, that will help your collection have more importance and, and, and show up more. And then the next thing you can do with roses, uh, well, roses bloom at different times. So you can, use, you can do a rose collection and you can combine it with other perennials and you can stage the roses according to the times they bloom. Also, there are so many different kinds of roses. As long as you have the sun conditions, you can have climbing roses, you can have shrub roses, you can have tea roses, you can have rugosas. There's just too much variety to even think about it. But of course, get Julia Child, the yellow rose, because it's just perfect. Mm. I love hostas. I love hostas, even though the deer love hostas. Because as a designer, I think it's one of the best plants you can use. It's, it's a xeriscaping plant. A, I think it can take the drought better than any other perennial I use for a big leafed plant. Because hmm. you do think of hostas as being, you know, shade and moisture loving. But I have seen them in full sun doing perfectly well as well. And try dry shade too. Mm-hmm. Yep. They can take it. Mm-hmm. Once they're established, they can take it. And that means a lot. And now I'm on this hill. I go back to this hill. This is new. Straight down, water goes down the hill. So I, I really appreciate the fact that they can take that. And I, I was thinking about that. If I, if I go to the Hosta collection, I use one called Halcyon quite a bit. It's a really old cultivar. And it's blue, but it's a matte blue. So it, it's, all, it's like a powder blue. And it holds its color the entire summer. And it's slug resistant, so it, so it just stays very fresh. 
and you can put it, I, you can mass it and use it against other plants to make them stand out. So if you use a simple plant like a hosta, you can make your little darlings look more important. And now that's a that's that halcyon is a lower plant. So the ones that you're collecting possibly, what's the new one? I'm collecting now Astrantia. I, I happen to think that's a really cool plant that is going to become a collector item. And I'm putting that behind my halcyons. Mm. So some of us collectors, you know, it's not an all at once thing. So it's something you might get one Japanese maple this year and a couple more next year or same thing with an azalea collection. You might get two or three that you're adding uh, each year. So uh, how would you plan ahead for adding some of those future additions to your collection? Well, what are you trying to accomplish with those plants? Are you trying to make a color statement? Hmm, I think for most plant collectors, they're just trying to have one of everything, Linda. <laughs> and so they ended up kind of with a hodgepodge. But I think you are kind of leading in the right direction, talking about color, and that maybe you can design your landscape so that all your pink hostas are in one area, pinkish blue type colors versus, you know, your orangey red type or yellow hostas, um, hostas, I meant azaleas. And same thing with, say, your hydrangeas or your Japanese maples, that that's the area you're adding them into. Maybe, maybe. I don't work that way. Um, some people do. Um, but color is, let me see. I, I, I'm very, I'm, I took the Joseph Albers color course, which is probably the most revealing and demanding thing I've ever done in my life. And he's the father of color, the color theory. And he had us do exercises like make two colors look like three. Make these colors vibrate. Make this color come forward. I mean, all the same things that you can use in designing, you know, with plants. Um, monochromatic studies. I took all this and trans, you know, just like you do when you wear clothes, um, you use, you cross platforms and, and I use that when I'm doing planting design. Like for example, if you had the red and oranges, the hots together, which would make a really nice design, you could cool it down by using white with it. So I love to do color studies like that, make them a little different. Hmm. But it would have to be the right quantity of white. Mm -hmm. So you can play with color like that. But as far as collectors go, I just like to keep things really simple and and keep the focus on whatever the collection. I thought you, when when we were talking about collection, I thought you meant like, collection of a genus mm -hmm. yeah and that could be the case too that somebody is is collecting all of one type of genus but also there's a lot of plant collectors out there who just focus on a, a few type of plants like 
daylilies or irises or a combination of those. That's tough. Mm -hmm. Those are tough. And if you do daylilies, you have to be able to overlook the mess. Unless you want to go out and pick all the daylily flowers off every day. <laughs> that would drive me nuts. But I, Yeah, I do know a few daylily collectors that that is what they do every morning is, is deadhead those flowers. But there's nothing more glorious than going to a, you know, Bob Selman's gardens down outside of Asheville, you know, North Carolina, and going into those fields and seeing those daylilies in bloom. They're amazing, amazing plants, amazing flowers. I mean, their heads are so big, they almost fall off the off onto the ground, but I can't do that. Maybe one or two, one or two daylilies. Iris, bearded iris, I love in a more formal garden. I'm now that I'm in, living on a lake, which is very informal. I'm I'm using Japanese uh, and ensadas. I'm using roof iris, which stay low to the ground. Um, Siberian iris. I don't seem to have enough sun for. I don't know why. But uh, you have to have iris. The blades alone are worth growing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about some of that those textures like the blades of iris that are very vertical and sword-like and combining those with some of the other plants in your garden well the classic is always you know doing it with the iris and the peonies and um you know the real soft combinations <laughs> and so as somebody who designs yourself you're doing lots of experiments in your own home garden i imagine I'm, I'm constant, I'm getting more and more concerned about aging in the garden. And I'm trying to create flat areas, very easy pathways with hand railings. And also bringing my plants that I really love as close to eye level that I can. Which would also feed into the collector. Because um, it... They want to see these, like the, the beautiful epimediums. When they're blooming, you can't see their blooms unless they're up close. And the, the collector jack in the pulpits, the same way. You want to get them up close. So that's kind of what I'm doing right now. I'm changing the topography of my hill. So I'm right between spring of ephemerals kind of settling down and summer is starting. We're midway between spring and summer. So I'm taking that opportunity to rip things up, which is something I do all the time. I'm never satisfied with the garden. I'm always changing it around. Yeah, that was one question I wanted to ask you about is how many times do you think you move a certain plant around? I mean, do you wait two or three years for it to settle in and for you to see how it combines with its neighbors? Or do you uh, change things around yearly all the time? When I have a new bed and, I, and something flowers next to something that is already flowered, I'm too impatient. I'm so, it's really, really tough for me to wait for it to all 
come to fruition. I have to just kind of walk by it and not even glance. I know in my heart that I've made the right decision, but I can't watch it happen. And that's in in a sun garden. I have to be careful about leaving space because I believe in planting in very, very heavy so people don't have to mulch. So I have to go with my gut. I have to design like I know is right and um, and hope for the best. I don't know. I design intuitively and it's, it's hard to talk about. I, I'm a visual person. Mm. I know my plants so well and I that I talk to them. I don't know. (laughs) They talk me through it instead of I talk them through it. Mm -hmm. I just know that if I, when I go into people's gardens, that they, that they respond to me and I respond to them. Nice. And so when you're talking about planting heavily to avoid having to mulch in between plants. So what it says on a plant tag, usually it'll be something like you know, off center, 18 inches, one perennial to another. Um, So when you're initially planting them, are you obeying that or planting much closer together? I create, I tend to create shapes inside of beds. You know, they are, people are always telling you, everybody knows the rules about um, using three, five, seven, nine, 11, depending on how much space you have. They talk about anchoring, um, borders. They talk about the depth of borders, the length of borders, how how it's supposed to be proportional to the size of the property, blah, 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 blah. I tend to kind of break up the bed into geometric patterns in my mind. And I use about 30% of it evergreen, which is your winter interest. And then I try to build in this bottom layer at that rate. And then I try, try to think about the middle layer, which is your shrubs. You can go to Michael Durr for that. And then I work in an ornamental tree layer. And most properties around town can't really add a tree to their property. So I end up using a large shrub, 15 foot. There you go. That's kind of my recipe. Hmm. And for making kind of like a garden room, uh, would you add non-plant material to it? So I'm thinking about some of those accents like gazing balls or a small bench or something like that. When do you know when something like that is needed? It's always needed. Hmm. Stone I love, like a stone patio, stone paths. I love paths to be four feet wide. Um, I, I, I can't imagine having a garden without some kind of hardscape. Now, are people familiar with that term? Oh, yes. Very familiar. And I think a lot of modern gardens these days almost seem to be, you know, 90% hardscape and 10% plant materials. I don't know what you're seeing out there. And what's the definition of plant material? So anything green. Oh, no, there's a different definition of plant material and plant, though. Mm -hmm. Well, in my mind, you know, because I've worked at nurseries, too. I've loaded trucks. I've done all of this. Mm -hmm. And plant material, in my mind, is plants that make a form Mm. as opposed to plants. Plants that make a form like a hedger or a, 
you know, like a U perhaps. Hmm. And so for accenting some of those gardens, um, I know you have some favorite antiques and things you collect. Uh, where do you source what you bring into the garden? Right now I'm trying to find boulders. If you know anybody that has boulders, I would love to find big boulders because I always put one third down into the ground and they're hard for me to find. I think more and more, I like to use natural material material mixed with granite, Belgian block, and then I tend to use, uh, I used Ipe, which is a type of uh, ironwood to do uh, arbors and decking in my garden in the plains. And you, you need to use it in a limited amount because it's very expensive, but it lasts forever. And it mellows to a beautiful silver that goes very well with any foliage you can imagine. And as far as ornament, that's so personal. I, I would always try to incorporate pieces of art that people liked if I could, if I could do that uh, on the farm. Certainly grist mills were big out in the Middleburg area. I hated to see them standing up. I always liked to put them down in the middle of a path and use them as, as part of a path. Uh, you have to be careful how you use ornament. It can, it can look out of place if you don't use it correctly. Hmm. Yeah, I, I know what you mean about having like those grist mill wheels standing kind of at, at an angle sometimes in the middle of a bed. It, it can look a little awkward. Mm -hmm. There's, I did one garden that had, I, it was all designed around the pieces of sculpture that people had. And that was really fun. They were a California couple. And so since I lived in California for 20 years, I really related to wanting to show the art and they, decided to use a formal French part tier design and incorporate their pieces that way. So it was my swan song with a company that I worked with for a while. Hmm. Yeah. And that is a different type of collector's garden where they're collecting the art, but building the garden around it. Yeah. You can't get too fancy with flowers. You need to keep it. You need to be strict with yourself. Hmm. That would be so tough for me, Linda. <laughs> yeah, you just have to make a simple palette. If you use seven plants and keep it to that, you're okay. Hmm. And that does make the maintenance a little bit less as well. Not if you have a lot of pruning. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maintenance is all in the plant. Mm -hmm. I, I, I dearly, dearly love boxwood, but I dearly, dearly love pruning. So um, I don't necessarily... Uh, design like that for people though mm -hmm. yeah and you were saying earlier that you were designing a lower maintenance looking ahead to aging in the garden um, and you know straightening out surfaces or making them more um, adaptable for future use would that include raising up containers um, or having more containers in the garden well I'd, I'd like to I'd like to do it do you know Thomas Hobbes? No, I do not. Okay. He wrote a book called The Jewel Box Garden. Mm. 
I think I'd like to do a garden like that if I had a collector garden to do. I would like to do a garden where the containers would be at different levels and uplit and it, it would be a dramatic collection. I That's how I would look at containers. I think containers that we're seeing now are really boring. If you look at what's going on on the West Coast, which is not very acceptable out here, by the way, I think the solutions are much better. Can you describe those a little bit? Well, the potted, the potted containers, number one, are using uh, trees, shrubs, perennials, just different, just different material than we use here and much, much larger containers. And then as far as the, the wood, the raised containers, they're all at different levels. They're all at different, different colors. And have you ever heard of Heron's wood? Oh yes. Beautiful. So Dan Hinckley was somebody that I discovered about the same time I discovered Karen Rex, Rex Road. I really went down the rabbit's hole then. And um, I've been trying to get back to the Seattle area as often as possible. So I'm caught between a rock and a hard place. <laughs> I, live at a I live on a beautiful lake now, um, but I'm really a West Coast person living in Zone 9. I'm in denial here. Uh, but I think containers are the way to go. And if you are a collector and you want to you want to continue getting exotic plants um, and a small greenhouse, if you want to save them, because many people buy in zone denial. Mm. And I know that you mentioned that you just purchased a greenhouse yourself. I did. 31 years of marriage. I think I earned it. <laughs> and what do you think you're going to fill that greenhouse with? I have no idea. It <laughs> changes every day. Hmm. So, you know, stay tuned. Nice. Right now, there's going to be two aquariums in there with water lotus. Oh, that's going to be beautiful. It's, in, it's, 10 by, it's 10 by 20 feet. I have room. Hmm. And oh, and I have a whole summer to get water into it. That's going to be the next challenge. <laughs> I do have a few miniature water lotus myself in very large containers, but the I'm assuming that those are going to be more the smaller scale lotus. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Excellent. Where did you purchase them? Uh, from Lily Ponds, uh -huh. which I just love their offerings there. Um, the one miniature lotus that I have in one large container is called, um, I think it's called Green Cloud. Okay. And I have to make sure on that name, but it is just stunning. I just, just wrote it down. It's just white with a little bit of a, like a almost chartreuse green tinge to it. Um, so that, but I do want to grow more miniature lotuses in my little backyard pond, but I always have the fear of letting it go free <laughs> because then you'll only have lotuses, of course. Ah, uh, now do you live on water also? 
I don't, I'm on a very urban corner here on the Washington, D.C., Maryland border. Okay. Okay. So just have a little backyard pond I dug out. And so my lotus collection is very limited to, again, what I can fit in those containers. I live on a lake now. It's actually part of the Occoquan that's been dammed up. It's a 12-mile lake. But I still miss my ponds. There is something about sitting next to a pond with all those frogs and my fish and the it brings you cannot believe how many birds and insects and snakes and life it brings into your garden i would have i try to work one into every every garden i make some kind of water feature even if it's just a fountain yeah, i totally agree i think water is the one thing that attracts every living creature to it must have mm -hmm. so and i just confirmed it is green clouds locust clouds. okay green lotus clouds. Okay. um so in wrapping up our discussion of plant collectors gardens and trying to design for them i was thinking in particular of those of us who love peonies and how hard that is sometimes to fit them into the garden because you kind of have a big hole right for a part of the season because they just die back totally almost to the ground right how do you deal with that in some of your designs i i usually overplant them with uh hosta or that's what i did before mm -hmm. there is in fact right in my back door which i had um i had i had boxwood there and i had red charm peony which is my favorite it's a bomb peony, which mm -hmm. is the single petal, and then the really congested, centered, the deepest red. Mm. And then I had um, I had all different perennials and annuals underneath of it. And you know, as the foliage went back, I would just cut it back, and they always came back every year beautifully. Mm -hmm. And annuals, I did. Um, I don't know. I usually did white in there always any kind of white perennials or annuals that would you know rebloom it's just a, it was just a very easy thing i don't think peonies are ever a problem and considering that they live for a hundred years got to give them a break i i the the fine leafed ones always stay though i've never seen what is it ten tenufolium mm -hmm. their yeah, foliage will stay nicely the kind of ferny textured one. Yes, yes. Yeah. So beautiful. And uh, I, I I, think a couple of them, their foliage will stay. I see them grown more often as a row, mm -hmm. kind of in farm style. Mm -hmm. um, and definitely out in Middleburg, that, that's how it was done. It, yeah. I just had a border out in the field somewhere, mm -hmm. and uh, the deer never bothered them, you see. That's the best thing about them out there. You can throw them in a field, and there they go. And the deer would never eat them. Mm. Yeah, if only the same could be true of the daylilies and other plants. <laughs> of course, of course. But, yeah. but that's not where I was designing. I would be designing out in the middle of fields, and mm -hmm. they were very structural for me, that mm. big deep, dark green leaf. You, you couldn't beat it. Mm -hmm. And I think usually I would put cone flowers under it because there again, um, you know, the deer would eat them. But in the summer, you have to remember the deer have a lot in the woods to eat. Mm -hmm. So they're not nearly the problem. 
it's when you get to the other end of the year when they're starting to, well, spring, they have babies. In the fall, they they are getting ready for winter. They're going to take out your anemones, all those beautiful anemones that people say that they don't eat. They eat them. Mm-hmm. And it's so true that, you know, it's deer resistant, not deer proof. And it always is up to your local deer population what they might have an appetite for. Well, mine swim the lake. <laughs> I, 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 I couldn't believe it when I saw it. Mm-hmm. But I also have fox that eat my voles. So I, I think there's a balance there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That always evens out, and Mother Nature knows best. Mother Nature always knows best. And by the way, that's how I learned to design, is by hiking. That is my passion. I hike all the time. And the Shenandoahs, and right now I do Prince William Forest because it's close. And that's where you learn to design. Hmm. That's such a great tip, Linda, to get out there in nature and see how it's done by mother nature and how things combine naturally every single season Hmm. and so how can our listeners get in touch with you if they want to learn more oh my gosh i guess through your podcast Hmm. yeah i think we could do that since you don't have a website and you're mostly word of mouth if people want to contact you they can just email or get in touch with social media myself, and I will pass those messages on to Linda. That would be great. And I would love, for whatever reason, you know, if I was able to work with somebody, I would like them to answer the question, what is your favorite garden? And I would like it to be mine. (laughs) Fabulous. Well, any final thoughts, Linda, on designing for plant collectors or just designing in general? Just have fun. Just have fun. You, you can't do wrong. Everybody, everybody has a, a sense of what's right. Everybody knows color. I mean, oh my gosh, look at Pinterest. You, there's so much on the internet that can help you. You can believe one-fifth of it. Hmm. Go with one-fifth of it. But just remember, oh, they're selling you plants online that will grow in California, not here half the time. So be careful. Ask for advice from people in your area. Old people like me are helpful. And um, if you're going to get a collector plant, take care of it. There's not too many of them around anymore. Great advice, Linda. And I think I would tack on to that and say go on every garden tour you can in your region. Oh, my gosh, yes. Oh, my gosh, yes. We have so many great gardens. Green Springs Garden, Dumbarton Oaks, uh, Ginter Park is nearby. I go to them all. The, The Ralston is really close by to me, Chanticleer. These are must do's. You have to see succession planting, you have to see the size, how big do plants really get? That is a must. I couldn't garden without that knowledge. Mm-hmm. Excellent point. Those are those public gardens that are open to us, you know, can be visited once a month or more, and you can keep track of those plantings you have an eye on and then emulate some of those choices. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Linda, for sharing your 
thoughts and your passion. And we loved having you on the Garden DC podcast. Well, thanks for thinking of me, Kathy. Blatilla plant profile. Blatilla, Blatilla striata, is also known as the Chinese ground orchid, urn orchid, or hyacinth orchid. This beautiful perennial plant is known for its pink, purple, or white flowers that resemble a Cattleya orchid. It is, in fact, a hardy terrestrial orchid. It stays in bloom for several weeks in the garden and makes a great cut flower. This is an easy-to-grow and low-maintenance plant. When not in bloom, the plant has elegant, tall, accordion-pleated foliage to admire. Blatilla prefers to be planted in well-draining soils amended with composted material. Give it a top dressing of shredded leaves in spring and fall. It likes consistent moisture, but not to sit in wet ground. It does well in part shade out of the harsh afternoon sun. It is hardy to USDA zones 5 through 8 and it is reported to be deer-resistant. Blatilla forms clumps over time that can be divided and moved around the garden. Plant them shallowly, about one to three inches in depth. It is best to buy mature plants. If you purchase them from bare root pseudobulbs, note that new planting can take two to five years to bloom. Blatilla, you can grow that. What's new this week? Well, in my home garden, the Carolina allspice shrub is blooming and the spirea are starting to put up their flowers as well. Over at our community garden plot, we are harvesting spinach, lettuces, arugula, and mm, the radishes and carrots are still not quite ready for us. In the local gardening world, some events you might want to attend include the Bethesda Community Garden Club's plant sale, Thursday, May 11th, open to the public from 9 a.m. to noon at Montgomery County Farm Woman's Market in Bethesda, Maryland. You can find out more about that sale at BethesdaCommunityGardenClub.org. And on May 19th and 20th, from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. both days, White's Nursery is having their spring open house. And that features an incredibly beautiful and excellent selection of azaleas for sale. The nursery is located off of Wildcat Road in Germantown, Maryland. Next, the Greater Brooklyn House and Garden Tour is taking place on Sunday, May 21st in the Brookland neighborhood of Washington, D.C., near Catholic University. That tour is self-guided and runs from 12 noon to 5 p.m. You can purchase your tickets online at gbgc.org. And I am speaking online Wednesday, May 24th for Brookside Gardens from 6.30 p.m. to 8 p.m., The fee is $12, and you can register for that through Active Montgomery website, and the topic is Gardening for Dry Shade. Happy gardening!
Get low-maintenance alternative to lawns with the new book Ground Cover Revolution by Kathy Jentz. Reducing the lawn is among the biggest trends in homeownership with an endless stream of homeowners looking for an eco-friendly alternative to a traditional everyday grass lawn. In the last few years alone, over 23 million American adults converted part of the lawn to a natural landscape and now are looking to do even more. The biggest challenge to adopting this new ideal of the perfect lawn is knowing how and when to replace your turf and which plants are the best ones for the job. Ground Cover Revolution is here with all the answers you need. Included are 40 in-depth profiles of plants that are perfect choices for replacing a grass lawn. There are options for sun, for shade, for dry and wet sites, and for various climates around the globe. There are choices that bloom, options that are evergreen, and selections that are deer-resistant. Author Kathy Jens has also included an incredibly useful chart that gives you all the details on each of the 40 choices for quick reference and to make your ground cover selection process even easier. Whether you want to replace the entire lawn or just reduce the amount of land dedicated to turf, Ground Cover Revolution will help you usher in a new and improved idea of what a beautiful lawn should be. Available at bookstores now and also at Quarto.com, where you can get 30% off using discount code GARDENING30. In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen and Terry Spade, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. This is the last word on why you should plant Liatris in your garden this spring by Sean and Allison McManus of Spoken Garden. We are bulb enthusiasts, and we try to incorporate flowering bulbs into our garden for year-round color. Flowering bulbs are so unique for so many reasons, and we particularly love growing Liatris in our own garden. Liatris spicata, also known as Liatris or Blazing Star or Prairie Gay Feather, is a summer flowering bulb that is in the Asteraceae family or commonly known as the Daisy family. We feel Liatris is an underrated or underused bulb because it is often overshadowed by the more popular kids of the bulb realm like Dahlias, Gladiolus, and all the other kinds of lilies out there. For any of you not familiar with Liatris, imagine tall spikes of feathery white or purple flowers. They start to open at the top of the flower, and then they continue opening all the way down the spike. Each spike can reach anywhere from three to six feet tall, and as the bulbs naturalize, they create larger and larger spikes of color over many years. Also, they have a huge hardiness range in zones three through nine. Also, they're drought tolerant, and they're a native North American wildflower. And not only are they a native to North America, they attract tons of pollinators. We've seen bees, butterflies, and hummingbirds regularly go and visit their flowers. Plus, they are deer and rabbit resistant, which is always a good thing. And there are so many uses for Liatris. You can use them as a cut flower if you want to. We usually don't. We like to see them in the garden. 
They're a great tall vertical contrast to the back of a garden bed. You can use them in containers like we do, or you can even cut them and dry their flowers and use them as a dried flower. We're always a big fan of vertical interest in our garden, and these are perfect flowers. And they pair really well with lots of other plants, and they also create seasonal interest. Now, something else you might not know, liatris grow from corms and they can multiply, so you might need to divide them every three to five years after they reach maturity. You can also grow them from seed, but be patient as it might take two to three years or more before you see actual flowers. So if you're looking for a summer flowering plant for your garden, especially a native plant in zones three through nine, a plant with vertical interest with bright white or purple flowers, and also a plant that attracts all the pollinators on the block, Leatris is definitely a good fit for you. To learn more about how to plant and use all kinds of flowering bulbs in your garden, head over to our YouTube channel, Spoken Garden, and find our bulb care playlist. And don't forget to subscribe. This is the last word on why you should plant Leatris in your garden this spring by Sean and Allison McManus of Spoken Garden. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.